Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, August 27th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pat African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the announcement that the European nation of Germany will be returning Benin art uh, to the African continent. French uh, President Emmanuel Macron has visited the North African state of Algeria amid a period of strained relations between the two governments. Eight Kenyan women have won governor's races in the East African state during the most recent elections. And there is a African-Japanese summit uh, that's being held this weekend in the North African state of Tunisia to discuss further cooperation between the two geopolitical regions. In the second and third hours, we continue our month-long focus on Black August. We will look at the legacy of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense co-founder, Dr. Huey P. Newton. Finally, we examine the impact of the federal government's counterintelligence program on the African-American liberation struggle. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, right now with the Orchestra Makasi uh, with Mos Fanfan, as well as uh, Dr. Remy Ongala. Let's listen in. <laughs>
Oh, oh, oh. 
Manufa, Matia Mantio, 
of bronzes, intricate uh, sculptures, plaques dating back to the 13th century and forward uh, when they invaded the Kingdom of Benin, located in what is now southwestern Nigeria. This happened in 1897. The artifacts ended up in museums around Europe as well as the United States, and for years, African countries fought to recover them. Uh, Germany returned the first of the sculptors to Nigeria last month. Thursday's agreement, uh, which the SPK described as the most extensive transfer of museum artifacts from a colonial context to date, uh, covers 512 objects, which ended up in Berlin in the aftermath of the 1897 looting. The first objects uh, will be physically returned to Nigeria this year. About a third of the treasures uh, will uh, remain on loan in Berlin for at least 10 years and exhibited at the Humboldt Forum in Berlin. Uh, the loan uh, might be extended. Uh, this represents the future concerning uh, the artifacts issue, a future of collaboration among museums, a future of according respect and dignity to the legitimate request to other nations and traditional institutions, said the NCMM's Abba Issa Tijani. He urged museums outside of Germany to emulate the agreement uh, that they are imposing. And in North Africa, the leaders of France and Algeria uh, took an important step earlier today towards mending relations uh, scarred by disputes over migration and a legacy of colonial crimes committed by Paris, apparently agreeing to cooperate on energy security and reassessing uh, their joint history. French President Emmanuel uh, Macron uh, wrapped up a three-day visit to Algeria with a raft of accords that France hopes will smooth ties with Africa's largest country, a major gas and oil supplier to Europe, and an influential regional military player. Algerian President Abdelmajid Tabounet held a very successful visit and credited Macron's personal efforts towards rapprochement. The two were chummy at their final meeting Saturday, smiling, embracing, and holding hands. Tabounet uh, specifically praised their meeting on security without elaborating. But the joint accords released by Macron's office were thin on specifics and stopped short of an official apology for France's colonial area wrongdoing, which Algerians have long clamored for. They included agreements on gas and hydrogen research, medical research, sports cooperation, and a joint commission to examine archives from 130 years when Algeria was the crown jewel in France's empire and from Algeria's eight-year independence war between 1954 and 1962. We had moving uh, moments uh, these last few days that allowed us to build a foundation of what is to come, Macron added. He acknowledged, however, a lot remains to be done. Earlier today, uh, Macron watched a performance by would-be Olympic breakdancers and visited an Algerian record store celebrated by a famous DJ. A feel-good interlude during a trip dominated uh, by diplomacy. Both stops were seen as part of Macron's relying on young people to pitch Franco-Algerian relations forward uh, after decades of tensions. The French leader visited Disco Maghreb, a record store in the western Algerian city of Iran and a recording label for artists who perform traditional ride music. Uh, Franco-Algerian artist DJ Snake has helped bring attention to disco Maghreb and live rhythms, and Macron sent the DJ a TikTok video message from the shop. 
McClone also viewed a performance by Algerian breakdancers who once, who hope uh, to complete uh, compete in the 2024 uh, Olympics in Paris, where breakdancing is making its debut as an Olympic sport. McClone promised France will become more flexible in issuing visas to citizens of Algeria after a major diplomatic crisis between the two countries over the issue uh, last year. Economic cooperation was a major part of the trip. Russia's uh, military intervention in Ukraine uh, has reinforced the North African nation's role as a key energy supplier as European countries seek alternatives to Russian energy resources. Macron's office said he would also raise human rights concerns. Algeria has seen a creeping crackdown on dissent uh, since uh, the so-called Harak protest of 2019. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. The election of seven women governors has brought into the spotlight the role of husbands known as first gentlemen. This is in the East African state of Kenya, which just underwent uh, elections, national uh, uh, parliamentary elections, uh, countywide elections, and presidential elections. Ordinarily, spouses of governors have an allocation from the county coffers to finance different programs they run. It is not clear if the first gentleman will also have a budget. The election of seven women governors has brought into the spotlight the role of the husbands known as first gentlemen. Uh, ordinarily, uh, spouses of governors have an allocation from the country, from the county's coffers to finance different programs they run, but it is not clear if the first gentleman will also have a budget. Here are the spouses of some of the female governors and the role they played during the campaign. Now, George Wonga, Ahama Bay's first gentleman, came into the public limelight in the campaigns of 2017 when he opposed his wife's choice of governor. Fattis Wonga was rooting for then ODM candidate Cyprian Awiti, who was seeking to defend his seat uh, while her husband was backing independent candidate Mr. Oyugi Mangwanya. For Mr. Wonga, residents needed to be told to vote for candidates just because they were members of a certain political party, the ODM. The wife was on a contrary viewpoint. Mr. Mangwanya uh, used this to his advantage and even as the governor's family staged campaign rallies to ensure their preferred candidate got the highest number of votes. Mr. Wonga would tag along with uh, Mr. Mangwana's campaign rallies where he would tell his supporters about the path they should take in politics. Their style of campaigning boosted Mr. Mangwanya's support throughout the country as they uh, projected Ms. Mangwanga as one who lacked the capacity to rally her family behind one candidate, hence unworthy of giving political direction. Both the governor and her husband would wash their dirty linen in public. That became a subject of discussion as the 2017 elections drew near. Although Mr. Wonga, alongside Mr. Mangwanya, put up a spirited fight to challenge the six-piece voting wave his, his wife was promoting, the recently elected governor managed to overcome the criticism and ensured ODM's all parliamentary, Senate, and gubernatorial seats. Interestingly, uh, Mr. Mangwanya this year teamed up with Ms. Wanga as her running mate on a joint gubernatorial ticket to carry the day on August the 9th. But this time, unlike her rival, former Nairobi Governor Evans Cadero, who introduced his wife, Susan Mboya, to the public towards the end of the election campaign, Ms. Wanga ensured her husband tagged along at most of the rallies. 
And uh, you can read this uh, article in, in its totality at the Pan-African Newswire website. And uh, finally, uh, there, of course, uh, has uh, been uh, issues uh, involving uh, the upcoming and, uh, of course, taking place right now, the Japanese-African Summit uh, that is taking place in Tunisia. African heads of state and a Japanese delegation have met in the Tunisian capital of Tunis for talks on promoting African-led development. Now, Tunisian President Thais Saeed uh, welcomed visitors to the 8th Tokyo International Conference on African Development, that's TCAD. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kashida has tested positive for COVID-19 and used a video link to join the summit that was chaired by African Union Chair Mackie Saul, the President of Senegal. Uh, President Saul of Senegal spoke of his faith in the conference. Almost 30 years after its launch, the Tokyo International Conference for African Development continues to deliver on its promises with concrete results in the areas of education, agriculture, health, and water. To give just a few examples, he said, on the agenda are measures aimed at countering China's influence on Africa. China has been steadily increasing its influence in the region in recent years, notably through uh, its ambitious Silk Road projects. However, the summit is especially important for Tunisia as the country continues to suffer from a political and economic crisis made worse by the COVID pandemic and more recently the war in Ukraine, which has impacted wheat imports. Tunisia hopes to take advantage of the summit to attract investors for about 80 projects that are worth 2.7 billion U.S. dollars in the health, automotive, space, and renewable energy sectors, which are expected to create 35,700 jobs. Some 30 heads of state are at the summit, which lasts until tomorrow. And with that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal, and concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time period, the Pan-African Newswire has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and numerous news, newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And if you'd like to, of course, uh, log on to uh, the Pan-African Journal uh, and also the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at uh, Pan African News. .blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, uh, so you can listen to the program again or you can share the program with other potential listeners, uh, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And we'll take a break, uh, and we'll be back uh, with our Black August programming for this week.
I'm a people loving man. I don't want trouble. I'm a people loving man. I don't want trouble, baby. I better go now, baby. I don't want to get in trouble. All you got to do for me is make it hard for me, baby. I better go now, baby. I see trouble, baby. Way up yonder, on me. I better go now, baby. I smell trouble, I smell trouble, way up yonder, ahead of me, I better go now, baby, I don't want trouble, I don't want trouble, I don't want trouble, baby, my people love me. A piece of love is made. Street uh, Music, that uh, recording was called Peace, Love, and Man uh, from the legendary uh, John Lee Hooker. And uh, right now we want to move into our Black August programming. Uh, Just uh, five days ago on August 22nd, it represents the 33rd anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Huey P. Newton in Oakland, California on August 22nd of 1989. 
today uh, we're going to feature a rare archival interview uh, with uh, H.P. Newton while he was in prison uh, and serving a term uh, for uh, the killing of a Oakland police officer in 1967. This interview is from 1968. Uh, let's listen in. Do you think uh, the, the blacks are ready for full-scale revolution in America? Um, at this time, it's a, it's a prelude uh, to the revolution. This interview with Huey Newton, Minister of Defense of the Black Panther Party, took place in the Oakland jail, where he is awaiting trial for what he terms self-defense. The ruins of the house you will see is what was left after the Oakland police surrounded it and shot it up in an effort to clean out the Black Panther's leaders. 17-year-old Bobby Hutton, treasurer of the Black Panther Party, was killed, and Eldridge Cleaver, Minister of Communications, was wounded. The house has since become a symbol for young people. Here in America, we see that uh, in the colony, the black people are, um, are poor. Uh, they own uh, no vested interest, really, in the, in the industry. And um, uh, what happens is our political representatives in the past have been only pawns for their white political colleagues who do have power and they depend upon these political colleagues to keep them in office, and uh, they depend upon their political colleagues to justify their actions. Uh, the Black Panther Party uh, says that uh, because we don't have these other things uh, as far as uh, economically, um, then we must develop still a power base. Historically, uh, when uh, revolts occur, there's an indication that something is going to happen and that uh, it seems to be a prelude to the actual revolution where uh, things will be changed. So I think we're moving towards uh, this revolution. Uh, there, there are some uh, alternatives, and the only alternative would be to first withdraw the troops from our many black communities, and uh, secondly, that uh, we demand control of the institutions within our community. Uh, these are first steps. So uh, it's clear in my mind uh, through uh, the current events that uh, black people are thinking in these terms, uh, even though uh, most people are not very are, uh, articulate, that you always have the articulate minority. And uh, the job of this articulate minority is to express the uh, desires in some uh, coherent fashion of the majority of the people. Do you think that the white right wing is using uh, the black militants to uh, scale war against the black people in America? Well, as I see it, um, 
that uh, the full-scale war against us has been going on for uh, some 400 years. I mean, completely, but, like, um, uh, uh, wiped us out, uh, the black people out, I mean, that they can um, uh, open the concentration camps, they can have uh, justification of the uh, blacking off the black ghetto, wiring it off, put troops around it. Do you think the right wing uh, agitating the, the black panther, I mean, the black militant group in that direction? Um, I, I don't really think that uh, whether they're agitating or not. I, I won't. I won't say that they're 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 not. But uh, what are they what they're putting themselves in for is quite a different uh, thing. You see. In other words, uh, as far as uh, black people being slaughtered, we're slaughtered every day, and historically, 50 million black people were killed on the Middle Passage alone, according to Melvin J. Herskovich, and uh, this was an act of genocide. Uh, which is not talked about, and that uh, the only thing people talk about is the plight of the Jews, uh, where six million were killed, and uh, when I state that 50 million black people were killed, just bring them to this country, uh, no one understands this. But uh, what, what I'm saying is that our real danger is not the Birchites or the, uh, or the Minutemen or uh, some other uh, fanatics, that our danger uh, is uh, really the people who wear the uniform of the establishment dressed in the clothes of the military or the police department. They're strong enough to wipe us out, uh, not wipe us out. They're strong enough to inflict uh, great harm upon the community. Uh, and this thing about the fanatics going around agitating, uh, I don't think it's, uh, it will have a great consequence to the black community. The uh, killing of uh, Little Bobby Hutton, our treasure, um, was a matter of uh, uh, attempting to wipe out uh, the leadership of the Panther along with getting rid of uh, Eldridge Cleaver because of his book, Soul on Ice, uh, that reveals many things about uh, the corruption of the penal system. Not only the Black Panther Party, black people in general are in danger. Uh, as you would note that uh, in the community where the police ambushed the Panthers, that uh, uh, the police uh, fired upon the community in general. They fired in uh, people's homes where there might have been uh, uh, women and children. Matter of fact, I understand that uh, uh, a child was almost killed and that uh, it was uh, it was a continuation of the tra traditional tactics, not only of the Oakland Police Department, but the police uh, throughout the country. And uh, an immediate end will have to be put to this, and I think that what's happening now that the Black Panther Party is merely speeding up time. As we know that whenever a man becomes frantic and strikes wildly, that uh, he's uh, becoming very weak. Uh, he's striking now everyone in the world, and uh, we know that he won't be able to engage the whole uh, uh, colored world into, a, uh, into a, a war and also fight a civil war here with the revolutionary people of America. I want to know the, the trend of, of young people in the, in the colleges, uh, not only black young people, but also um, white young people is, is coming forward for the revolution. In fact, um, uh, there's a thing on the campus, uh, even in Oakland here, where young people march around the jail and said, um, let you we go. You think it's a uh, uh, young revolution is coming, that will be more and more coming? Uh, yes, uh, uh, now the, uh, the uh, 
white intellectuals are uh, responding to the liberation cry of the colony. And uh, one of the reasons is that uh, the intellectuals are uh, very conscious of the political situation and uh, seemingly very sensitive, and uh, they are attempting to avoid uh, a suicide, a suicide of the United States. Uh, they see very well and very clearly that uh, the United States is about to commit a suicide uh, because any time that uh, you uh, take the bread and the livelihood away from a people or an individual, uh, you're automatically uh, threatening your own life because that person then will uh, rise up against you uh, and uh, possibly uh, to do you bodily harm because he's demanding life and uh, cannot live without bread. The uh, intellectual sees this and uh, he's uh, attempting to uh, curtail it and uh, he sees that there has to be some modification or, or uh, a revolution in the country to replace the old uh, racist institutions. So what, what you're saying here is it's not a, a race war, say, because uh, 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 it's understood now what's happening is a race war. Um, Can you explain that? Uh, the, the first place, the intellectuals make up a small percentage uh, of the general population, and uh, it's a small percentage of uh, whites who are revolutionary uh, white people, and that uh, it's very difficult uh, to divide the race issue from the economical struggle. Uh, number one, because uh, uh, white America is by and large uh, a, racist, uh, a racist people, and uh, not only to black people in the colony here, but to people of color all over the world. And um, I think that the uh, uh, on one side, as far as black people are concerned, it's not a race issue. It's uh, simply an economical struggle and a cultural struggle, but uh, the difference between uh, uh, it's a conflict between the culture of the uh, the uh, white American middle class and the black uh, lower class, and that uh, but the the black people don't view it, don't hate white people because they're white. Uh, they uh, hate white people because they inflict racism upon them and uh, they're exploiting us. Tell me, Huey, um, what, what, what can um, the, the, the militant group or the revolutionary group do to protect their leaders? Um, uh, what, what can we get through to the people that uh, when, like, Hutton went down and um, Malcolm got killed, Martin Luther King got killed, um, you are in jail, uh, uh, um, Cleaver is in jail, what, what, you know, how can we impose on them the importance that it's just as important as when Kennedy got shot? Uh, the loss is that great. Uh, what can, what, uh, what, what are you doing toward? Um, the, the, the first thing that uh, we have to realize is that the leaders uh, don't have any strength, really, that uh, the, the vanguard group of the revolution doesn't have strength other than the strength of the people. Uh, the black community uh, should be the protector of uh, its leaders and that uh, the black community should be a haven for the leaders and a stronghold for protection. At this point, uh, black people are afraid of the tremendous power uh, that the races are flexing. Uh, and it's a matter of overestimation of the power that the uh, race of America has and that uh, it's an underestimation of our own strength. Uh, but a time will come when uh, black people will rise up like a mighty storm or a hurricane 
uh, sweeping all evil gentry and corrupt officials into their graves. And uh, nothing will be able to hold uh, this force back because it will be so swift. And at this point, the masses will have great faith in the vanguard and the leadership and uh, that uh, they will protect the leadership. Uh, in every country where revolution has occurred, the vanguard has always uh, uh, suffered in the early days because of a lack of trust uh, of the people. Uh, and it's, it's a matter of overestimating uh, the enemy. I'm thinking of Cuba now and, uh, well, uh, Bolivia in uh, particular, where uh, the peasants uh, uh, supported uh, uh, Che Guevara and the guerrillas, but at the same time, uh, Che was very uh, uh, aware of the fact that the villagers uh, might give him up at any moment uh, simply because of the fear and the strength of the Bolivian regular army with the help of the CIA. But um, the same thing happened in Cuba. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, because the guerrilla lived uh, for a length of time in Cuba to uh, develop certain strongholds, then the people uh, became more uh, secure and had more faith in the vanguard group. And I think that uh, this will happen uh, uh, in this country, and I think that it's even happening now because the community is becoming more and more receptive uh, to the uh, the uh, problems and the uh, demands that the vanguard group makes upon the community. What motivates you? What makes you take up such a, a tremendous, uh, I would say, burden? <laughs> you know, um, because you know, it's so tremendous. Because uh, you're giving your life for it. So I would like you to explain to me. Uh, well, from a very early age, with my association with uh, uh, people who were politically inclined, uh, the first group was a uh, black nationalist group. Uh, I was at the age of about 16 or 17. I, uh, they sort of guided me into an awareness of uh, the uh, plight of uh, black people in America and people of color uh, all over the world. And uh, from that age on, I've been involved with uh, uh, political movements. And that, uh, of course, I've experienced uh, racism. Uh, just being black here in America, one will uh, necessarily experience exploitation and uh, uh, be affected by racism. Uh, I started to handle the question and uh, uh, strive for a solution to it. And uh, up until this time, uh, I think with this awareness, one becomes uh, more and more sensitive. Uh, and as one realizes the, uh, the uh, magnitude of the uh, plight, uh, one understands that uh, people cannot live under uh, this system or any uh, capitalistic system uh, because it excludes uh, most of the people. And uh, just a very uh, small circle enjoy uh, the fruits uh, of the labor of, of the many. So uh, uh, going, working from uh, this premise, that uh, I found it uh, necessary to uh, pass this consciousness on to other people. And uh, the black man in general, ever since he's been here in America, um, has uh, strived towards his freedom. Uh, Denmark Vesey and uh, not the Prophet Turner uh, were men who were speaking of freedom. Um, uh, tell me, um, do you tell me the relationship between uh, the people that you you, you work with, uh, you started off with like um, um, Hutton and Cleaver and, you know, and all the other uh, 
Panthers uh, that, that are in jail or indicted now? Or tell me, tell me the relationship. Could you explain that to me? How you meet and uh, you know briefly, and you know what make them change and, and so forth. Uh, well, it's a matter of uh, as far as. Uh, the general membership of the uh, Panthers, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a point in uh, pointing out to them uh, the pitfalls of the uh, institutions here in America. Uh, Eldridge Cleaver, who's the Minister of Information of the party, and uh, uh, Bobby Seal, uh, who's the chairman, and uh, Bobby Hutton, uh, who's the uh, uh, treasurer, uh, were very close uh, to me, are very close. Uh, Bobby was. Uh, just as uh, a brother, um, we view each other uh, with uh, a great love and a great understanding, and that we try to extend this to the general uh, uh, black population and also people oppressed people all over the world. And I think that uh, we differ from um, uh, some other groups simply because we understand the system better than uh, uh, most uh, groups understand the system. And uh, with this realization, uh, we attempted to form a strong political base based in the community with the only strength that we have, and that's the strength of a, a potentially destructive force if we don't get freedom. What is there about this system that creates and breeds uh, racism? Uh, I think that uh, uh, racism uh, is a, in this country starts out as a, a very historical thing. Uh, it was probably uh, stimulated uh, through the greed for profit. Of course, that uh, black people were brought here in chains as uh, slaves to uh, to uh, um, to for the wealth of the enslaver, who was the European, and. Uh, the reasons for uh, white people choosing uh, black people from south of Sahara was probably because of some, uh, uh, because of uh, the twisted mind of the European. And uh, I think this stands into a, the uh, religious uh, situation that uh, the European was unfortunate for some reason and uh, acclaimed uh, uh, one God or uh, absolutism, what we call it. He worshiped one God, and this God was all good, absolutely good, all-powerful, and uh, this God, of course, didn't have the, uh, the uh, animal drives that the human being has. Because the European identified with this one God, then he was, um, he was put in a situation of rejecting himself. He, uh, let me finish this. He rejected, for instance, his sex drive. Uh, if he did anything that deviated from the code of God, then he was automatically a witch or uh, something subhuman. Uh, then when he contacted the African, uh, especially South of Sahara, where we had dualism, and our God had uh, two or more heads that... Uh, uh, you ran in a situation where the African could accept himself as a human being, accept his sex drives, and he didn't have to project his uh, humanism to anyone else. And uh, the European projected all of his evilness that he himself had to our so-called evilness, really it was just uh, human drives, to the African. And so it was a combination, what I'm attempting to explain, of not only economic exploitation but also racism. 
and uh, then coming to this country uh, because they were so profitable for the, the European or the American in this case to uh, work the slave that uh, this uh, uh, racism became ingrained and many white people don't understand it now. Let me say this. Um, I, I have watched a beautiful relationship between you and Gary. It worked beautifully. And when people talking about Black Panther and racism, um, the relationship here between you and your lawyer, who is white, I, I haven't seen any racism uh, in this case. Um, what, what makes the difference here? Well, if you were familiar with uh, Panthers in general, you wouldn't see any racism uh, either that uh, we're not racist. Uh, we, don't, we believe that the solution uh, to the problem here in America is not, uh, the goal is not racism, but the goal is freedom. And uh, that the Black Panther Party is willing to work with any revolutionary people. And that uh, it's not a color thing that uh, 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 the Black Panther Party and black people in general, I believe, the bulk of us are uh, color blind. That uh, it's a matter of freedom, a matter of being free from the exploiter, uh, nothing more, nothing less. Uh, the Black Panther Party uh, is first a political party and that uh, we've analyzed the political situation here in America and we see that black people are uh, a, a colonized people and that we have to, if we're going to find an answer for our problem, which is a problem of liberation, that uh, black people are in a state of slavery and we must be liberated uh, from the mother country. and. Uh, the first steps that we'll have to take uh, towards liberation is control of our community. Uh, if we have no control of the destiny of the institutions within our community, uh, then we have uh, no guarantee of any other political right. And uh, as we analyze history, we see that the, uh, according to uh, uh, some historians, uh, John O. Franklin, for one, and also E.B. Dubois, uh, says that uh, the reason that uh, black reconstruction failed was because of a lack of political and economical and military power. And uh, so the Black Panther Party is attempting to develop uh, this political power. And uh, one of the chief things that happened uh, after the Civil War was the disarmament of black people by Lincoln. And uh, Lincoln made certain statements uh, to the effect that uh, he didn't want black people to uh, form guerrilla groups so that they could get uh, true liberation. So this is why he disarmed them. Uh, we were promised land, which was never given by the Free Man's Bureau, uh, 40 acres and two mules, according to Dubois. Uh, all we got after the Emancipation Proclamation and Black Reconstruction was some black representatives and, uh, in the government. Uh, what was peculiar about these black politicians was that, the, uh, in fact, they didn't represent a power force. Uh, usually in the political arena, a political representative represents a power group, whether it's economical power or uh, feudal power, uh, commonly called land power, or, uh, or uh, even a military might. We notice that uh, if one uh, cannot protect his land, uh, then uh, he doesn't really have control of it. We notice that uh, this government, uh, after it makes a political decision, it always has its uh, force to back up that political decision. 
and uh, in the uh, dress of the military or their police force. So what you're doing is forming a, a, a political program then? Yes, we do have a political program. Uh, could you just outline this briefly, what's your political program? Well, our political program is to secure uh, the ability to determine the destiny of our community. It's to, uh, to ensure our community of decent housing. Uh, we want full employment for our people uh, with a high standard of living that will provide a high standard of living because uh, this is the richest country in the world and we can't see any reason why that uh, uh, this government cannot uh, employ all of its people. Say, for instance, um, talking political program on employment and full employment, uh, suppose the white community decide, okay, today that he's not going to hire uh, any black because of um, the revolutionary. Um, where would you say would be the, the basic starting of the black man? Where would he start from then? What would he do? Uh, if white people were to stop hiring black people? Mm, yes. Yeah, well, th this is uh, approximately the situation now that a large percentage of black people are unemployed. And uh, we're, on the, uh, we're in the poverty zone that uh, our people suffer from malnutrition. Uh, that uh, we suffer from poor education due to a lack of, uh, of uh, economical strength. And uh, the, where we would start from is to modify the whole economical system. Uh, we also demand a plebiscite uh, to be placed uh, within the many black communities set up by the UN so that uh, black people can then vote and see whether they want to stay a part of this country or not. Uh, we uh, are a culture within ourselves, we are a nation within ourselves, and we have the right uh, to claim nationhood. Uh, we say that uh, the capitalistic system hasn't ever been able to employ all of its people, so therefore we're demanding a, a change in the government system. And if, if black people decide uh, we were demanding land uh, so that we will be an independent country, but this will be up to the bulk of black people through the vote. Uh, and the UN will supervise its vote. Uh, but as far as uh, where do we start, we start with first revolutionizing or changing uh, the American uh, institutions. Yes, now, getting to the revolution, uh, you think this is the start of a revolution, uh, a full-scale revolution? I, I think that uh, before all uh, full-scale revolutions, there are uh, many votes uh, that are somewhat unsuccessful uh, because uh, if they were successful then there would be a revolution and uh, now that with the uh, with the resistance that occurred in uh, Detroit and Newark and uh, Los Angeles and uh, in Oakland that uh, we're seeing that black people are uh, along the road are are going towards liberation, and uh, I would predict that uh, a full revolution will occur in this country if there's no uh, uh, immediate change of the government structure, which I doubt that, the, uh, that this country is mature enough uh, to revolutionize itself without uh, bloodshed. How, now, how can we get, uh, say, the bourgeois black or the middle-class black who is enjoying uh, certain privileges of the white man, and you believe now uh, uh, this privilege deserves him, and he's trying to get more. How can we um, let him know that there's a revolution that he should? Uh, <coughs> can uh, you, how will he be able to do that? Well, uh, of course, the, the the black bourgeoisie are the hand-picked leaders, uh, picked by the power structure to lead black people. 
uh, black people are now losing uh, confidence in uh, the black bourgeoisie, uh, simply because the black bourgeoisie has not led us to uh, liberation. So uh, the first step is for the, the black lower classes to reject uh, the uh, traditional leadership of the uh, black bourgeoisie. And uh, this is happening because, as you very well know, the black bourgeoisie has not endorsed the uh, rebellions throughout the country, but yet the rebellions have occurred. So uh, uh, it's very clear that uh, there is a tremendous uh, gap between uh, the uh, masses of the lower class which uh, compose about 95% of black people in America and uh, the black bourgeoisie who might uh, uh, compose 3% at the most. And that would be uh, overestimating, I would say. Would you say, you, um, here you're very young, about um, 23, 24, right? 26. 26. Um, would you say that the, the, the younger generation are, are getting away from the, the bourgeois power? Would you say they're more coming toward your thinking? So it's it's like um, the old versus the young, and the young people are springing up a new kind of thinking. What you? Uh, I think the revolution has always been uh, uh, initiated by the young, uh, simply because uh, the older people uh, can see perhaps some change. Uh, because they've lived a number of years and they see a change uh, from, say, 50 years ago up to now. And uh, the younger generation uh, hasn't seen these changes at all. And uh, I think that um, the, uh, this is one of the reasons that in every country the, the young uh, generation, the younger generation, lead the revolution. But uh, some very conscious uh, older people uh, uh, do identify with the uh, with the revolution, and this is, I think this is universal. Uh, Dewey, I saw you in court the other morning, and um, while um, some things were being said, and I was thinking, what do you feel about sitting in court being judged by the people uh, uh, that the revolution that you're fighting is against? Uh, how well we feel, tell me. Um, I, I feel very, uh, uh, very little different than I feel uh, just being free on, uh, so having so-called freedom on the streets of white America. Uh, there, you have, uh, uh, in the so-called freedom, you have complete, uh, you're completely controlled by a white establishment, a white racist establishment. And the court system is simply a part of this institution, this racist institution that's uh, oppressing all black people throughout racist America. And that uh, I, as far as the justice, uh, I see very little justice that a black man can possibly get within the court system as it exists. And the black community uh, is now uh, uh, standing up and demanding uh, a revolutionary change within the court system. If you were in a position to predict your future, what would you say um, it would be like? That's a very difficult question. Uh, but I have all faith in the people, uh, the uh, in the black community, and uh, I have very good counsel, and uh, I have uh, hope that uh, uh, change will come very soon, so that the court will be modified, so that black people will get justice all over the, this country. But uh, it will be very uh, difficult for me to say exactly what will, uh, or even predict what will, what will be the outcome. 
Um, uh, your environment here in the jail, um, could you um, say what it does for you uh, in terms of your strength, uh, in, in your ideas, and um, just, you know, you know, the people that you're surrounded with? Uh, what, what it does, could you explain that? Uh, well, at this point, and uh, I think that I won't, I won't be resigned uh, now or in the future that uh, my beliefs are as strong or even stronger as uh, they were before this incident. Uh, I remember when I used to go to uh, church in Sunday school, the minister would say often that uh, suffering is good for the soul, uh, that it makes one stronger. So uh, I think that I've experienced this uh, here in jail because uh, the punishment seems to uh, make uh, a black man stronger, and that's one of the uh, difficulties that the uh, whole penal institution has with uh, black people, that uh, when they imprison a black man, that uh, rehabilitation, as they call it, uh, doesn't work really because uh, black people realize that they're political prisoners and that they're uh, oppressed in the prisons uh, just as they are uh, in the so-called uh, free world and that uh, all it does is makes one uh, more hostile towards the oppressor. Uh, Huey, it was interesting um, that we were talking the other day and uh, somebody went by, a young man like yourself went by and you know him, you grew up together. Now this man wasn't a militant, he wasn't considered militant, but he was still here, he was still had the handcuffs on, he was still in jail. <coughs> Um, could you explain uh, the, the, the uh, significance of that? Well, he wasn't really fighting a black militant thing as you're doing, a revolution, but yet he was still here with you. Uh, well, uh, I, I would say that he, he's fighting a, uh, thank you, uh, he, he's fighting a black thing. Uh, he's fighting uh, for a black cause, but perhaps he's not conscious of it. Uh, many uh, black brothers here in jail are in jail for robbery, for burglary, and so forth. And I view them as uh, political prisoners uh, because the first thing is an injustice for them to be here because I can't see where a man can rob or take what's already his. Uh, one thing that I would like to say to the uh, revolutionary youth uh, throughout this country and throughout the world, that the responsibility for the change is, is, uh, is upon our shoulders. Uh, the older generation has proven that they have either been disinterested or unable to change uh, the uh, institutions that have caused uh, murder throughout the world. And America being the monster, at the he is the head of the monster to create the disturbance all over the world. So it's going to be our job to uh, revolutionize the world. As far as we're concerned, that uh, we're advocates of the abolition of war. Uh, we do not want war, but uh, war can only be abolished through war. And in order to get rid of the gun, we found it necessary to take up the gun. Uh, that's from Chairman Mao, and uh, I think that uh, most revolutionaries agree with this throughout the world. I think that uh, change will only come through struggle. And uh, of course, as I uh, pointed out, and I recapitulate that we don't want war, but uh, if it's uh, necessary for us to uh, white war out with uh, some strong tactics, we're prepared to do this.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, Saturday, uh, August 27th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, this is Black August uh, 2022, and we just heard a rare archival interview with uh, Dr. Huey P. Newton in 1968 when he was incarcerated in uh, the state of California. Uh, related to a shootout uh, between Oakland police and uh, himself as a member of the Black Panther Party. And uh, we're going to continue our Black August program. We'll take a musical interlude. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. I went down on Blake Street.
the voice of uh, Miss Willie Mae Thornton uh, with the tune entitled Unlucky Girl. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, August 27th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Zikaway. August, of course, is Black August, the commemoration of the historic struggle of African people against enslavement, colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism, institutional racism, and all forms of exploitation. The Black August uh, commemoration uh, emanated uh, from uh, the political prisoners held inside the dungeons of uh, North America. And, of course, the government's response to the Black Panther Party and other national liberatory movements, civil rights movements, human rights movements, community organizations during uh, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, which continues to this day, was, of course, the counterintelligence program, the Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, scheme uh, to misdirect, neutralize, and liquidate uh, organizations and leaders uh, who are at the forefront of the struggle for national liberation. We're going to listen uh, to a interview as well as a news program uh, put together uh, by the Like It Is uh, program uh, back in New York City uh, during 1980. Gil Nobles, uh, who was the host and producer of Like It Is. Let's listen to this important audio documentary. to Like It Is. In an earlier program that we ran as a special three-part series entitled A Decade of Struggle, we included an interview with a man who worked as an informer for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We didn't show all of that interview, however, because of time limitations. We do feel, nonetheless, that we should air as much as possible of that interview because of the gravity of the information it contains. This edition of Like It Is will be devoted solely to that end. The name of the informant that we interviewed is Dothard Perry, also known as Ed Riggs, also known as Bill Perry, also known as Othello. He worked for the FBI as an informer who infiltrated various black organizations during the 1960s. Ours is the only full-face on-camera interview that he has conducted thus far. Now, we interviewed him on two separate occasions. So, for purposes of continuity, we've edited this piece, going from one interview to another according to subject areas. We began with his account of how he was recruited by the FBI. I was a student at uh, Sacramento City College and Sacramento State College. Uh, I was stopped in the parking lot one day by a special agent by the name of Frank. 
uh, he uh, told me uh, a little bit about that he knew that I had worked in military intelligence and how would I like to work for him. And also that I knew certain people in the so-called black radical fringe that they would be very interested in finding different information out about. I told him that uh, my uh, term for military intelligence had been very short-lived, that I was not interested in them, and I wasn't interested in him either. By now, this must have been 1968 Yes. Mm -hmm. um, the following month, um, I was going to school on a federal grant and also a VA loan check. Uh, my check didn't come down, either one. I had bought a um, oscilloscope for a television communication class that I was taking from uh, a person that I didn't even know. He just had the oscilloscope for sale and it was very cheap, so I bought it. Uh, since my check hadn't came down, being a student, and I was taking like close to, I think, about 23 units, something like that. It was a very heavy course load. Uh, I couldn't work and go to school at the same time. So I decided I would take the oscilloscope down to the pawn shop, pawn it, and use that money until my checks came. I went down, I pawned the oscilloscope. As I came out, I got busted. Possession of stolen property seems that someone had broken into Sacramento City College and had stolen the oscilloscope along with quite a few other things. So what happened? Well, uh, I was taken to court due to the, uh, uh, due to uh, a friend of mine, an attorney in Sacramento that I had been working for. Uh, he intervened for me and it was broken down to misdemeanor possession of stolen property which I was given three years summary probation for. Uh, let me clarify this. Summary probation means that all you have to do is you write a letter into the probation officer every month and you say, well, I've been a good boy this month. Bye. You know. Uh, I got an offer for a uh, scholarship at Los Angeles City College which I took advantage of, and I started going to Los Angeles City College and UCLA in Los Angeles. Coming out of uh, LACC uh, from the school one day, I was met again by the same special agent who said that uh, he wanted to talk to me, and uh, the offer was still good about me working for him. Again, I told him no, I was not interested. Then, told me that uh, I should be interested because they could help me with a problem that I had. And I told him I didn't have any problems that I knew of. He said, oh yes, you remember the uh, possession of stolen? I said, yeah, well that's summary probation, man. I just write a letter in every month. He said, oh no, no, that's not summary probation. Um, it turned out it's a, it's a felony probation for three years, which means you have to report in every week. To bring it down to a nutshell, what happened? What happened was that uh, 
as far as they were concerned, it was felony probation now. And if uh, when you jump probation, that means they can put you in for the rest of the term of the probation, which came through about two years and, and ten months. And so they threatened you with that? Yes, they did. Why didn't you stand up to that? I called the probation office in Sacramento first. They told me a warrant was out for my arrest and that I was going to jail. Did you have any particular fear of jail? Yes. Uh, I liked, I don't like to be shed in. I have a very, very dark fear of being shed up anywhere. Uh, How would they have known this? Uh, the only way they could have known that is from my psychological uh, profile when I went into military intelligence, which they take on all people that work in military intelligence. So you bent and you decided to go to work for them? Yes. How would you say that most of those who are doing the same thing that you did uh, have gotten into that behavior? The same way you did, they were coerced? Of course, pressure. Um, some 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 can take it for uh I, I think some do it might do it for the pay for the feeling of power um it's uh it's a natural syndrome for a powerless person given giving uh a pedestal where he can direct or he can he can say well this man goes to jail or this man stays free uh they get a feeling of security from it for the FBI. Did you get an indoctrination or did you just start cold? No, no, I got an indoctrination. Uh, it started off with uh, camera surveillance, uh, excuse me, camera surveillance, uh, electronic techniques, surveillance, um, shadowing, um, the obtaining of, of um, let's say, letters, empty envelopes, um, instructions on how to go to somebody's garbage containers and take out useful items. You'd be surprised at the things that they take out of a garbage can, by the way. I mean, anywhere from the leftover food from breakfast, just to know what this guy used for breakfast, you know. Uh, when they become interested in a person or a group of people, they try to find out as much as they possibly can psychologically, and uh, academically and, and, and social-wise. Uh, who, who do they run with? Do they go to certain nightclubs? Does this one have a sex hang-up? Uh, is the man impudent? You know, anything. Anything that can be used later on. How long was this indoctrination process? Uh, it lasts anywhere from two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, what is the most sophisticated uh, equipment that you use as far as eavesdropping is concerned? The uh, video setup, and also I uh, work with the new, uh, I think it's called parabolic reflectors uh, for sound pickup. Uh, mm -hmm. Very interesting piece of equipment. How is that used? Okay, it's, it reminds you of a disc. Uh, have you ever seen those uh, radioscopes? Yeah. You know how they're a disc and then there is a cone behind it. Like cone it. in the center, right? Yeah. Okay, these parabolic reflectors were just like that, except a smaller version, and you would point it in the direction of where you wanted to pick up the sound from. And how far away can it pick up sound? Oh, 
I think it was what anywhere from the ones I used from 200 to 500 yards. What? Oh yeah. Distinct. Distinct. Very distinct. You could be in a building, like like say we're here right now. Okay. Okay. Not the next building, but the building behind. Let's say it's a little bit taller. Okay, I could point that parabolic reflector from there to this window, and I could pick up. That's how good it was. Through the window? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The window didn't have to be open. The window didn't have to be open at all. How did you, uh, how does one go about tailing a person? Uh, describe that. Is there a particular art? You say you have to be taught that. Well, there is a particular art to it, but, you know, okay, let me, let me state, number one, the easiest way is to get close to the person so you can run with it. You know, that's the best way. Okay, um, the second best way is the thing I've called uh, trial and error observation, where you would go around and you would follow this guy, let's say, from a distance of anywhere from a half block to a block, as long as you can keep him in sight. And then you find out certain locales or certain places that this man goes to every day. Now, if you can get a set pattern of places that this man goes to every day, you got him down. You got him down. That's what they needed to know. So after a couple of weeks, you were ready to go to work? Uh, I wasn't ready, but I went to work, yeah. Do you know if this indoctrination period is more sophisticated today? probably much more so sophisticated for the simple reason that they they're probably more severe on them as far as rating is concerned mm -hmm. uh, simply because of all the disclosures that are being made against them I think they're being very very careful and when they sink their hooks in I think they're making sure that it is tight airtight in your experience did you ever see the FBI try to sway Newspaper or media news? Oh, hey, let me let me run this down to you. L.A. Times, L.A. Times, man. I went over there and picked up press passes from certain people over there. Uh, uh, let me see, uh, some people that work for NBC. TV? Yes, in Los Angeles, used to get press passes to the bureau and stuff. In fact, is, we used to get some camera equipment from there. So a lot of this news film was probably turned over to the FBI. Oh, sure. It was definitely turned over. Oh, hey, they had a lot of reporters and, and it, well, you know, it was that, that, old, that old game of one hand washes the other. Usually an agent would prefer to meet the reporter on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you understand what I mean? Build a rapport with him, you know, go out to the press club, buy him a few drinks, you know take him out to Hollywood Park, you know, for the races, you know, that kind of thing. Say, uh, hey, Jim, you know, your, your paper's covering such and such, or your TV station's covering such and such. And, yeah, I just like a little bit more information than I've been getting. I need it, you know. It, it would kind of help me, you know what I mean? A personal favor. And if you do something for me, maybe I can do something for you, you know, in the future. Like, you know, when, we, when we're about to break a case, you'll be the first to know, that kind of thing. What kind of work did you end up doing as an undercover agent? Were you doing espionage work or informant work? Informant work and also um, what you would call um, illegal entries, uh, selling of weapons, selling of explosives, uh, arson, 
you would sell weapons and explosives to these radical, so-called radical groups that you were joining? Yes. All right. Where did you operate? I was given a cover name, Ed Riggs. With that, I was also given a birth certificate stating that both my parents were. Uh, a birth certificate and a record for a Robert Riggs and a Mary Riggs who were deceased. And you lost all of your true identity? Uh, yes. And you operated in California? Uh, California. What cities in California? Los Angeles, Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley, Sacramento, Chino, San Bernardino, Santa Cruz. Any other states in California? Yeah. Uh, Chicago, well, not, well, Chicago, New York, um, made, made two trips to Washington, D.C. Uh, also, I better put in Seattle, Washington. That's very important, too. How does the FBI coordinate this information? You were one of a number of agents who were doing this. How did they correlate and coordinate this flow of information? How many agents, let's start with that, how many agents were working in a given city like L.A. in the late 60s? Jesus, we're talking about a lot of people. Uh, like I said before, in the state I would say 700 to 1,000. In Los Angeles, which was a large concentrated area of blacks, we're talking about anywhere from 300 to 400 people. San Francisco, probably the same thing. That's a large concentration of black people. Wherever there was a large concentration of blacks or a large concentration of minorities. Uh, don't let me only say blacks because we're talking about the Chicanos and we're talking about the Chinese, too. But among every ethnic group, there were ethnic groups of that group who could be recruited by the FBI to infiltrate their own. Right. Just want to get a sense of how much money American taxpayers were laying out for this kind of exercise. What was your salary? When I started with the Bureau, I was uh, making, uh, what, $200 a week plus expenses. When I left the Bureau, I was making close to about $800 a week and uh, also some expenses, too. So it might run as high as $1,000 a week? Yes. It's according to what assignments you were put on at the time. And statewide, there were 750 agents. 700 to 1,000. It might have been more than 1,000 statewide. People are into a fantasy world when they believe that the Federal Bureau of Investigation finds out what it finds out through, through the method of scientific investigation that the agents can just go out and they can plot a course and they can follow a man everywhere and they take notes and such. That's not the name of the game. The name of the game is find someone that is close to that man or can get close to that man or that group or whatever and have him do the legwork. So in other words, there obviously then would have to be more informants than agents. Definitely. What would the ratio be? Oh, Ten to one? I think every, every special agent usually has anywhere from six to seven what I would call prime informants or agent provocateurs. 
uh, and then also you have anywhere from 20 to 25 people per agent also that are not really what you would call the everyday uh, informant or agent provocateur, meaning that that person is not on a steady payroll by the Bureau, but every once in a while they will go to that person for information. What is your speculation on what recently happened in Miami? Would you suspect that there has been a number of agents that, or informants that have descended on Miami since that eruption? Oh, definitely, definitely. And not only from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, too. You'll have people from, from military intelligence, um, military intelligence and the CIA, for the simple reason that they want to find out what, well, the CIA and the military intelligence people want to find out is there anything, is this anything connected with some kind of foreign agency? That's their prime objective. Uh, the Bureau wants to find out whether this was a organized uh, uh, type of uh, mass movement that's going on. Are there leaders? Are there central people that, that started this? They want to find that out. Who was, who was the one that was out there getting the group of people together and said, hey, let's go get this? You know, they want to know that. How would you tell a member of a community that they might be able to spot an informant? How is that possible? Can you spot one? Or what should one look for? Let's say someone in Liberty City. Well, it's like this. Um, informants come in all sizes, colors, and attitudes. Um, there is no definite way unless you can get hold of this telephone bill and if you can connect the number with the bureau office and you got it, you know, but the fact that they're not working steady and yet are able to eat and get around doesn't mean anything. Uh, not so much in the black communities. That's one of the hard, hard things because there's such thing as hustling and some people are known as good hustlers. So people don't tend to trip off of him, you know, but I don't know how blood did it, but probably did. Uh, he robbed somebody or, uh, hey man, he's selling some weed or whatever, you know. Would it necessarily have to be a new face in the community? No. No, fact is they, try, they tend to shy away from that. What they try to do is get someone that's already situated. It's much easier. Much, much easier. Uh, if they have what they call a prime informant, uh, one that has been trained that knows how to uh, to get into the group say he's with another group and he's made a name for himself okay and then there is a group that the bureau is interested in well what they would like for him to do then is use his rep from the other group to deal with it what do you base your conjecture or your statement that FBI operations and surveillance is more extensive today than it ever was. Why would there be? There doesn't seem to be the kind of organizations that existed in the 60s. Why would there be an even greater surveillance on the part of the government? Well, you have to, you have to look at it from the standpoint that the Bureau looks at it. And to them, uh, organization or no organization, as long as there's one or two people or a handful of people that still think in the mold of some of the groups in the 60s, then they will be watching them. You can believe it.
Then we moved into the area of budget, how the Bureau operates and manages its money. The FBI has holdings in, in different companies. Um, they have storefronts, uh, businesses. Wait a minute now. Why would they have holdings in companies, stock holdings in companies? Uh, secretary money. Oh, you mean they get such a big budget and they may not use it in a particular year, so they invest in the stock market. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, the Bureau could... If, if 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 federal funding was cut off to the bureau right now, it could still go at full budget, I guess, for the next oh five, maybe six years. Is it for this reason that the FBI has been able to uh, stand up against many other government agencies? You have to understand the person that started the bureau and in his background, J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar made an agency that was answerable to nobody but J. Edgar. Uh, there hasn't been a president that would dare call the FBI out on the carpet. Why? Why? Number one, just like they do background uh, or surveillance on us, I suspect they do it to quite a few people in, up there in the Capitol. Senators, presidents, vice presidents. Everybody's got a skeleton in his closet. And on top of that, he's rendered the FBI financially independent. Yes. Uh, the allotments for their budget has grown bigger and bigger with each year. Um, while I was in the Bureau for seven years, the, the budget grew bigger and bigger. It's the thing that the money, money's not spent are always sent back to, you know, to, to the government. Okay, but if you notice, the Bureau never sends any money back. Never. It uses its total budget, which is almost unheard of except for the CIA, and they do the same thing. Um, I guess being super super patriots, they always had to figure they always have to figure that someday maybe the government might become corrupt with communists and leftists and 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 black and communists and minorities and whatever, and that the FBI would have to function on its own bravely by itself. So J. Edgar Hoover had 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 the foresight to make sure that the FBI would have a little nest egg around so it could conquer these subversives, you know. And work west. Uh, what groups did you infiltrate in New York? In New York, it was the Black Panther Party, Queen's section. How far into the organization did you get and how'd you do it? Uh, what I did was I was a member of the party already in the California area. All I did was travel up and say I was checking out the party in the Queens area. Uh, what happened was, though, I only stayed with that assignment for, what, uh, two and a half days. We found out later, I mean, we found out then that it was infiltrated, infiltrated heavily by the New York Police Department. Uh, and there was no need for your services. There was no need for my services. Let's go back to the 60s. In the first interview, you touched on 
the fact that you were involved in some way in the robbery of arms from the armory, weapons armory, from the armory. Yes. Give us the details and what just went down. What happened was was that uh, the Black Liberation Army, excuse me, was in need of weapons. This was relayed to my supervising agent. By you? By me. Okay. Uh, he said, well, why don't you go back to them and tell them that you have a plan to get some weapons? What year was this incident? Um, Jesus, I don't really remember. Okay. All right. I don't really remember. Um, it was early 70s, I know that. Uh, what happened was, well, I didn't live that far from the Compton Armory. It was right up the street. Um, and what the plan was that I laid out to him, that on parade day they only had one guard at the armory, and it would be very easy to go in there and get the weapons. What role did the Bureau play in allowing you access or to facilitate access to rip off these arms. Oh, they 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 worked out the whole thing. They they made sure that the uh, that there were no guards, you know, except for I think it was was there one guard? I think it was one. No, there wasn't. There wasn't anybody. As a matter of fact, that was the thing that was uh, that kind of made me nervous about the whole thing because I said, damn, you're supposed to have it looks kind of phony when you go to an armory on a military base that's located near the Compton Watt area and there's no guard in there with the weapons? This is by day or by night? Uh, this happened during the day. What time of day? Morning? Uh, no, no, it was, uh, it was uh, late afternoon. So what happened? You went into the armory via... How did you get in? Uh, we, uh, what we did was... How we, many? Uh, well, it was uh, six of us all together. Okay. And we uh, cut the, um, there was a chain with a lock. We cut the chain, opened the gate, shimmied on in, got over to where the armory was, opened the door, nobody was there, took the weapons and split. <laughs> but the thing about it was the firing pins were taken out of the 16, the firing pins were taken out of the uh, 6 caliber machine guns. Uh, the uh, grenade launchers, they were, they were ready, no doubt. They're, they were in 81. Nothing had been tampered with them. I couldn't understand that. Why would the Bureau be interested in collaborating to allow the theft of these weapons, so that knowing that they were going to go to the SBA or the BLA? Well, it's, it's like this. Um, SLA, I'm sorry. Well, you have to... There's a thing called a controlled situation. And what is meant by controlled situation is that you know who has what and what they intend to do with it. Then also you can also have someone or something where you can exert a little pressure to make sure that they do such and such a thing. They don't deviate. And the Bureau was very into controlled situations. So in other words, when they got these weapons, they could then be uh, goaded or lured into getting into some activity that would make them vulnerable. Right. In other words, set up. Right. At this juncture, Perry began talking about a man called Elmer Geronimo Pratt, who Perry says is serving time for a crime he couldn't have committed. Going to allow a person like Elmer Pratt to sit up nine years in jail for nothing. 
The man did nothing except that he was a leader in the Black Panther Party and they wanted him out of the way. They? The Bureau. So, what happened? Well, there was a murder, right? The murder happened in Los Angeles. Elmer Pratt was in Oakland, okay? Elmer Pratt was under 24-hour surveillance, both physical and SE, electronic, okay? The, the Bureau, at any time after LAPD picked up Elmer Pratt, could have went down there and said, hey, look, you made a mistake. The guy was in Oakland, okay? They didn't. They sit back and let it happen because they wanted the man out of the way. It, 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 it's sick. Here's a man that got a bronze star and a silver star. Pratt. Pratt, right. Elmer Geronimo Pratt. So when he got out of the service, he joined the Black Panther Party because it was a cause that he thought was just and he thought was right. Possibly, and I'm not saying, don't let me paint him a saint, the man possibly did some things. But he did not commit a murder. You know? And let me tell you something about Elmer Pratt. Uh, and, and this is from personal observation. The man was honest, the man was upright, and his word was his bound. You know? And he wouldn't go around doing a jive-ass robbery on a damn tennis court and, and kill someone? That's just not Elmer Pratt. He was set up, he was railroaded from the get. I'm surprised they didn't try to kill him in prison. And I'll be surprised if they don't attempt to do it now. Because now people are starting to make waves. Finally people are starting to realize after the man's been in there nine years, and oh, oh by the way, four or four years of that was in solitary confinement. Was the Compton Omri the only instance where you supplied arms to uh, liberation or black groups? Uh, no. I supplied handguns, a few other things, quite a few people. Uh, the Community Freedom School, uh, I um, gave them the ID, uh, the money, and told them the store to go to to purchase weapons, and what weapons to purchase. Have you witnessed murder? Uh, one. Fred Bennett. Were there ties to the Bureau involved in this murder? Uh, well, let me put it to you like this. Fred Bennett? Fred Bennett was a um, sort of low-ranking Panther Party member in Oakland. Uh, he was with the national headquarters. Uh, uh, I found out later on that there was a great possibility or that that he might have been really a informant, but of a very low caliber. Well, what happened? What did you see? Well, I went up in a Jeep in the Santa Cruz Mountains with Jimmy Carr, Fred Bennett, and myself, and... Uh, some white guy. Uh, oh, also, I was finding out later on that the white guy was working for the Bureau also. Um, Mosier, I think his name was. What happened? Anyway, 
we get up there to the mountain, and Bennett says, you know, uh, we got an informant here. In the car? In the car. And when he said that, the first thing that clicked through my head was, excuse expression, uh, Jimmy Carr was not one to be trifling with. Uh, the brother had been in and out of prison all his life. Uh, for him to cut somebody's throat or to uh, possibly physically beat them to death would have been no problem. He was a big, big brother. Uh, the only thing that I could think of, well, the man's hands was on the steering wheel. Let me try to take his head off before he takes mine off. I was armed also. Uh, then... So what did you do? I jumped, and I said, hey, what you talking about, man? And that's when he pulled his 357, and he said... Car? Yeah. He said, I'm talking about Freddie. And what I thought was going to happen, now when he stopped it, he took him out, he chastised him, right, slapped him around a lot. And then he took him up the hill. Uh, what I thought he was going to do was, you know, like beat the guy up severely, you know, break a leg, arm, whatever, you know, mess his head up a little taste and then leave him out there. The next thing I know, me and Mosier, the white guy, we're standing by the Jeep, and we hear three shots go off. And then Carr comes down the hill, and he says, hey, you guys got to help me get rid of the body. And I'm thinking, oh, he killed him. That's, you know, but the thing was also, I was saying, play it like it is, you know, don't act like you're going to panic or anything, you know. So we went back up the hill. The white boy was greatly agitated. I mean, he's scared. I mean, uh, excuse the expression. Uh, we went up there. He had almost actually decapitated the man. Have you ever seen a, uh, a 357? Have you seen what he could do? Yeah. Yeah, well, his head was all, you know, like off. And we got some some brush, some wood, and got some gasoline for the Jeep, and car poured it over the body and threw a match, and he burned the body up. And when I got back, I called up my supervising agent immediately and told him exactly what happened. And do you know they did not do a damn thing? No. Car. <laughs> Nothing. George Jackson was a member of the controversial Black Panther Party who was killed while he was in prison. Reports saw that Jackson was trying to escape from prison when he was gunned down in the prison yard. Perry had some information about that. As I recall, there was a good deal of public uproar about him being in the slams. And the chances were pretty good that he was going to get out mm -hmm. because of this public pressure. If that's so, why would he be involved in such a sham attempt to break out of prison? Okay, let me put it to you like this. I think that, okay, you have to understand the psychology of prison per se itself. Every inmate fantasizes about breaking out. 
let me put it to you like that. Have you been there a year or so, you're going to be thinking about how can I get out of this place. <coughs> the thing was, George Jackson thought that, and he probably thought correctly, that San Quentin officials under no circumstances were going to let that man walk away from that, from that prison alive. Uh, appeal or no appeal, probation or no probation. There are so many ways you can set a person up in prison. It's not funny, you know. I mean, uh, they want you. They'll get you. So not only because he hated the prison, but because his life was in jeopardy there. Oh yeah, more more so than uh, I think more so that his life was in jeopardy. I was called by a group of um, so-called radical left in California to witness some fireworks up in Santa Cruz mountain area. When I talk about fireworks, I'm talking about explosives. Not 4th of July. Yeah. What happened when you went to witness this uh, testing of fireworks? I took a Portapac uh, unit with me, a Kai. Um, I uh, videotaped the sequence of uh, how they used the uh, explosives, who was there. You know what kind of explosives were they actually? Uh, they were. Uh, let me see. It's plastic explosives, and it was and, and it was a solution somewhat like nitroglycerin or nitroglycerin. Very high explosive. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what happened after that? Okay. I I found out through Carr and two of the other people there that this was supplying this to them. Uh, I went back with the videotape to the bureau. And I was later to find out that uh, also worked for the Bureau. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what was the real purpose that this group was testing these fireworks? Uh, Did they tell you at the time? For a possible escape of George Jackson. Okay. So what happened? Uh, what happened was that um, James Carr, who was uh, better known as Jimmy Carr, who was like a second lieutenant to... George Jackson, uh, also was one of his former cellmates, uh, was setting up a escape plan. Right. Okay. Now, the thing that is very confusing at this point to me is that through the information that I have and from the times that I spoke to Jimmy, uh, they were setting up the works, but they hadn't put anything in motion. Uh, in other words, they had been slipping certain items into Mr. Jackson at present through different means. But uh, the time wasn't right mm -hmm. at the time that George Jackson supposedly made the attempt. Um, but at any rate, a plan then was for someone to slip this stuff into prison and get it to either Jimmy Carr or George Jackson to effect a breakout. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. Jimmy Carr was on the outside at that I'm time. I'm sorry. Okay. okay. But it was slipped into George. Okay. It was slipped in. Okay. Because the same valves turned up after the so-called uh, prison breakout. If, if you remember... The day of the George Jackson assassination, and that's what the hell it was, uh, Vanetta Anderson supposedly went to uh, visit George Jackson. Uh, I am saying Vanetta Anderson did not visit George Jackson. I am saying that 
disguised as a black woman who went to visit George Jackson. Uh-huh. And I am saying also that Stephen Bingham, the attorney, was used by and used by the way of handing the tape recorder to Stephen Bingham, to, to Bingham, to take in, because there was no gun in that tape recorder. That gun was already inside there with George Jackson. But apparently then, not only had the nitro and stuff been slipped to Jackson, mm -hmm. but also there was a plan. And what was that plan? Uh, well, the plan that we knew about, or let me say, the plan that I knew about personally was the plan where um, they were supposed to blow the east wall of the president. Uh, Jackson, in turn, was supposed to have uh, taken um, a, um, a chain, some long metal object, thrown it around the wires and grounded it. All, that's cutting out the power to the president. And then escape off in the darkness with, with jeeps, with, with armed people that uh, Carr knew. But what actually did happen? What actually did happen, okay. Now, this is only uh, a hypothesis on my part. Yeah. But what I think, since the present authorities and the Bureau were well aware of what Jackson was planning to do, that they forced his hand. Also, I believe that one of the guards had the 9mm pistol. Mm -hmm. There is no way in hell that George Jackson could have got that 9mm pistol smuggled in. Because that 9mm pistol was confiscated over a year ago from Landon Williams during a raid. Oakland Police Department had it in their possession. It went from the Oakland Police Department to the Bureau, and from the Bureau it disappeared. Up until the time Jackson supposedly had that snuck in, where, you know, he hid it in a wig or whatever they said he did, whatever lie he came up with. So you're saying then that George Jackson was given these vials that were actually duds, and then he ran out thinking that it was nitro, threw it against the wall, ping, they didn't go off, and he was blown away. Right. And the thing that, that, that backs, backs that to the max is that the brother that went out with him also had two of the tubes. Uh, but the thing was, the prison authorities put him in a basket, and they took the tubes out into the center of the yard, and supposedly they stood back from a long distance and shot their weapons at it, breaking the tubes and the contents. You know, the contents all spilled out and so there was no way to examine those. They did find one tube, and that was in George's cell. But no one's ever been able to get their hands on it. These are some legal process brought down by the Attorney General's office in California. What do you have to say about the church committee hearings? Do you feel that the church committee has revealed all the information that they've gathered? No way. No way. No way. What percentage would you say they've released of the material from a personal viewpoint? Personal viewpoint, I'd say about 10%, if that. That's kind of stretching it, I believe. When you went to Washington to testify, you took a lot of evidence with you. Yes, I did. Physical evidence. Yes, I did. They kept that evidence. Yes, they did. Where is it? I have no idea. I have no idea. It was never made public. No, it wasn't.
Was it strong evidence? It was very strong evidence. I mean, how strong can you get when you actually have the, the voice of the man speaking to you over the telephone, instructing you after you steal certain particular paperwork to burn that garage up? Uh, and he says his name. Uh, yeah. I think that's very strong evidence. Well, what do you make of their reticence in releasing this information? Well, let me put it to you like this. I think the whole thing was a farce. I think it was a setup. Uh, when I went up there, uh, I was interviewed by uh, some people from the Justice Department, which was cool. But then also they had two uh, agents from the Bureau that interviewed me for an hour concerning the information that they damn sure knew about. <laughs> you know. Uh, I think Church cooperated with uh, with the authorities to a great extent as far as holding back certain elements of things. You know, the Bureau has a good way of dealing with uh, with senators and congressmen. You know, when they when they try to release something on them, they say, "Hey, well, this file is still active, or this case is still actively going on, and if you release this pertinent information, then it will destroy the whole case." that kind of thing. So what is that called? There is a expression that they use for this. Uh, I'm trying to remember that expression. So it was a little, little legal terminology uh, in the interest of national security. Hmm. We've aired these interviews in the hope that we've provided information and food for thought. It's not our purpose to characterize Mr. Perry nor judge him. If you choose, however, to pass judgment on Dothard Perry, it might also be appropriate to question whether or not each of us bears some responsibility for having allowed things like this to occur and continue to this very day. You know you're going to go to prison, don't you, sooner or later? Or do you think you might get away? Uh, I don't think I'm going to prison. I really don't think I'm going to prison. Do you, are you in fear of your life? Not particularly. How uh, can that be? It's it's like this. Um, I mean, all the all the characters that you've been running with, and now you're turning and talking about them, naming names. Somebody's got to get warm. This interview, full face on camera, is a good chance it's going to be seen nationwide. Well, I take it like this. Um, I've played the game this long. I'll play the game out. Uh, I think I have a little bit more going for me now than I had before. I think people are aware of the position that I was in and why I was in the position I was in. And I don't think the Bureau, under any circumstances, wants to put their hands on me. The fact is, I think they're going to be uh, using most of their time denying that they've ever known me. The fact is, when, uh, when, when this when I first came out with it, uh, that was one of the things. We've never talked to him before. We don't know him. <laughs> you know. Then later on, it was a thing, well, yes, uh, we know him, but he, he never worked for us. Then the third thing that came out, well, yes, he worked for us, but he didn't work for us at the times he said he worked for us. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think they're more worried about people becoming aware of what's happening more so than me. In your career as an informer, you committed arson, you witnessed murder, 
you stole weapons and supplied them to certain groups under false pretenses. You procured information from people. That's an ugly mirror to hang up in front of your face, isn't it? Definitely. But then also, if, if you're thinking about the part of them pressing charges against me behind those actions that I did, you have to also think in part that uh, if they're going to press charges against me, then they have to press charges against them. How much would you say you've earned in your career as an informer? Have you ever thought about it? Um, no, not really. I, I, I would say anywhere in, in the seven-year seven period, I, I'd say anywhere between uh, $50,000, $60,000. Over a seven-year period? Over a seven-year period. It's not a lot of money. It's not it? a lot of money, no. Uh, per se, it really wasn't the money. It was the pressure. Uh, you'd be surprised at what... Uh, a squeeze in the right place can do to a person. Because if you had told me when I got out of the service that I would work for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, I told you you were out of your mind. And you're saying to our audience today that there are many, many, many black people, brothers and sisters, who are caught in the same bind that you were in. Are worse. And are working for the government. Oh, yeah informing on our people. Definitely. Um, the thing that really irritates me about this whole situation is that, of course, I, I know what I've done. You know, I'm well aware of that. Uh, I don't need to be reminded of it. But I think that black people in general need to be reminded of it because it's happening every day and it's happening in every city in this country. I doubt that there's a place between Alaska and California that is not happening to black people. But the thing that, that gets me is that black people are sitting back and they're saying, yeah, well, get him. Yeah, you can get me. Big deal. You haven't hurt them one iota. The fact is, you did him a favor, if you really want to get down to it. You did him an immense favor, because you, you killed the cat that was pulling your coattail, and that's all they want anyway. You know, the thing is, is dealing directly with them. Use your, use your lawmakers, your, 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 your so-called prestigious community leaders, to go out there and start questioning these people letting them know that they're not going to allow this type of situation to happen anymore. Are you saying then that too many black folks today are apathetic and laying back in the cut that you don't see enough resentment to what has gone down? Definitely, I'm saying that. If I was part of the madness and it makes me ill and it makes me angry and I can go out here and do what I'm doing now and these are the people that it was being done to, and they don't even give a damn. Then, hey, man, what's happening? You know, you tell me. You let me know. Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview uh, done by Gil Noble.
for the Like It Is program, and that's going to conclude our program for today. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, just go to our website at Pan-African Radio Network, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. This is uh, Abayome Azikwe, and uh, we're going to close out uh, with the music of Hank Mobley, with Mobley's message. This is Abayome Azikwe signing off, and have a beautiful week.